This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. What I'd like for you to do and invite you now to turn to John 17, right after uh, the text that we looked at this morning. Uh, earlier, uh, we saw Jesus calling his disciples to pray by giving them some instructions on prayer. And this session, what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to listen to Jesus pray and learn from from the Master and how he prayed and what he prayed for. Whenever you normally hear a reference to uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, you often go to the Sermon on the Mount and uh, you look there where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. In our text, I sometimes have called this the real Lord's Prayer, not that the other one is any type of fake, far from it. But in this particular text, you see Jesus praying himself. It's his own. And uh, only John in his uh, gospel records this particular prayer. And of course, we know uh, the purpose of the gospel of John was to, uh, so people would believe and know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And as you read this prayer, you see Jesus in his glory. And you see his love for his church, his passion for them. It's often called uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer because Jesus in it consecrates himself as both priest and sacrifice before his impending death. In it, he also prays intently for his disciples and those who would come to believe through his disciples. Uh, The prayer... Uh, of course, comes to us at the end of the Upper Room Discourse that we looked at just a few moments ago, uh, probably before arriving at the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, there's some debate on uh, when this prayer actually took place. Possibly it was in the room or on the way. Uh, Jesus moves from having communion with his disciples to having communion with his Father. I believe he prayed uh, this prayer corporately, for his disciples uh, to hear. And uh, as you know, you can learn a lot from hearing a person pray, particularly the Lord Jesus Christ. It is probably why uh, this prayer is so special, probably why John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, asked his wife to read this prayer on his deathbed, saying, it is where I cast my first anchor. When I uh, approached this particular chapter of John as I was preaching through the Gospel of John, I divided John 17 into three messages, and I followed the normal divisions. Of course, Jesus prays for himself during the first five verses. He prays for his particular disciples there during the next number, and then at the end of the chapter, he prays for the church. Uh, In our session, I've sought to combine all those thoughts into one message. Now, it was harder than I initially thought. Uh, When you take three messages and say, okay, what do I want to include? What do I want to touch on? It's like, I want to say something about that. I want to say something about that. But what I'm going to try to do this morning is just try to hit some highlights. Uh, I want you to particularly notice what Jesus prayed for on behalf of his disciples and his church. As pastors and future pastors, uh, we, uh, as we, as I mentioned already, our 
one of our main responsibilities is to give ourselves to prayer. And particularly praying for those to whom God has given us oversight. I personally have my flock divided by days. Uh, we have uh, somewhere around a little over 300 members of our church. And those are the ones I feel particularly uh, responsible to pray for. And so I kind of divide up my flock by days and have it divided up. I have an app on my iPad called Prayer Notebook. And uh, I have kind of A through a certain letter on Monday. And what I do is I try to pray through, my intent is to pray through my entire flock each week. Uh, I have been told, even when I was in seminary, that uh, if you don't have a list, that you probably don't pray. And so I have tried in my life to have a list, so I discipline myself to pray for my flock. Uh, When I do pray, of course, all of us can get into ruts of what we pray for. Uh, We can get into the rut of, hey, Lord, be with that person. And we already know he's going to be with them if they're believers. What are we going to pray for them specifically about? We can get mindless in our prayers. I remember a number of years ago uh, calling a guy on the phone, and I got his voicemail. And so I'm just leaving him a message. And at the end of the message, I said, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> and then I realized I said it, and I was like, what do you do? It's, it's stuck. It's on his message. <laughs> He's got this for posterity's sake. Uh, and so, uh, but you know what? Sometimes when we pray, we can just not even know sometimes what we're saying. We just It's vain repetitions. We need to be engaged in prayer and know how to pray, and we need to pray specifically. In this particular prayer, we see, I want to focus on four requests uh, that Jesus makes. Three of them are in reference particularly for the disciples and for the church. And so I want to suggest that these be requests that you make for your flock and possibly even for your family, for yourself. And also I want you to see and bask in the glory of Jesus who prays all of these for you. And he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Uh, First thing I want you to see in our text as we come to it is that uh, he prays for his glorification. This is the one not particularly for his disciples, but of course we're very thankful that he prays this. And uh, it, it in many ways allows us to be who we are. He, notice what the text says, verse 1. Uh, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, just as suggestive, notice his posture in prayer. He looks up to heaven. It's a little different than a lot of us, how we pray. Normally we bow in humility, heads down. Uh, whether this was metaphoric or what, what we see is you see confidence, ready to go to the cross. You see him say, the hour has come. Now that's significant in John. Because you read through the Gospel of John, what does he continue to say? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My, my hour is not here. And then just a few days later as he comes in during the triumphal entry, 
now. It's come. And now as he prays, right before going to the cross, he says the hour has come. And in these first five verses, we see why he can pray for his glorification. We see, of course, he's the son of God, different from any of us. God's unique son. We see uh, in verse 1 and 2, he's also part of this trinity. Uh, listen to what he says in verse 2, uh, or start in verse 1 again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And you see just this interaction within the Godhead. They do things together. You see his authority. Of course, he's over all flesh. All power is given unto him as we know. You see as well he deserves the glory because he's the giver of eternal life. I will give eternal life to whomever you have given me. You see how he flawlessly performed the Father's will. I mean, from his his whole life, everything the Father wanted he did. It says in verse 4 of this text, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. I mean, we know that he hadn't said it is finished yet, but it was good as done. He he could speak that confidently. And we also see his eternality, verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. His days are from old, from what? From everlasting. Why does he, why can he pray for his glorification in this hour? Ultimately, it's who he is. He's the God of the universe. But ultimately, that glory, he prays. As he prays this, he he knows the Father's plan. He knows what he's up against in the next number of hours. He submits to it, and he prays for his own glorification, but all for the purpose that his Father would receive glorification. And so just by way of passing by as much as we can as we look at this whole chapter is this. He prays, first of all, for his glorification. And we ought to pray in everything that we do that he would receive glory, that the Father would receive glory through everything he does and we do. Now Jesus begins to pray for his disciples. Notice he prays for them, first of all, particularly. Verse 9. It says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I don't know about you. I'm always thankful when people tell me they pray for me particularly. And here Jesus is praying for his particular disciples. I think here he's particularly praying for those 11 who are with him. These men, of course, were incredibly privileged people. Uh, What had brought about this privileged position uh, this uh, past February, my dad celebrated his 70th birthday, and uh, I have a cousin who owns a yacht off Deerfield Beach in Florida, so we all flew down and went and did some deep sea fishing, and as we were headed out and trolling through the waters of the waterway, we saw these massive houses, and I just kept thinking, what? how in the world do these people make this much money? And there's so many of them, and how did all these people get into such privileged positions? You read this particular text, 
and you read about these disciples whom the God of the universe was praying for, and you wonder, how did they get to be in such privileged position that he is doing this for them? And, of course, the text unfolds these. Of course, number one, it was the father, or it was the son's revealing of himself to them. Look what it says in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So Jesus, how did they get to this privileged position? He displayed his glory before them for three and a half years. Number two, they were privileged for this because it was the Father's gracious gift. What does the Bible say? It says the Father gave these men to Jesus. It says that at the end of verse 6. It says, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Of course, this will be a theme throughout the prayer. The Father gave his Son a people, and the Son redeemed them. And then the third reason they're in this privileged position is it was the disciples' faith. They responded in faith. That's seen through a number of terms in verses 6 through 8. First of all, it's seen through that they have kept. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have what? Received them. And have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have what? Believed that you sent me. How do you become his own? How do you become in that privileged position? If you want to look at it from our stance, you have to receive his word. And isn't it wonderful that I'm looking at a number of you who God the Father gave to, you, to his son, you. You, of course, responded in faith. And you're in an incredibly privileged position. And what does he do now? He prays for these men. I want you to see three things he prays for them. Number one, he prays for their preservation. He prays that they would be kept. Verse 11, it says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So his first request is that they would be preserved in this world. I tell you, this world can be pretty vicious. You and I see it every day, the times that we live in. Jesus knew the world that they would face. I mean, think about what was going to come up in the next two or three decades with all of these men. He knew what they were going to face. And so he talks to his father and he asks him that they would be kept. Verse 12, it says this, While I was in the world, I kept them in your word. So I kept them while I was with them. Those whom you gave me, I have what? I've kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Of course, the son of perdition, speaking of Judas, is the one destined to be lost. It was not that Jesus lost his grip on him. Judas' departure, of course, was foretold in the word and was evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. Although Judas was lost, he was not lost against his own will. It was his own rejection of Jesus, but Jesus was asking for the other disciples, keep them, verse 15. 
I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So there's two things that Jesus is asking that they would be kept from. Two impending, you could say, problems. One was the world. Verse 14. I've given them your uh, your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Of course, because the world didn't receive or believe in, in the word, and they did, the world was going to hate them. Now, all of us would naturally think that if the world is going to be so hostile to them, why not just simply take them out of the world? Why not just beam them all to heaven when they believe? And of course, Jesus clarifies his prayer, verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. He has a purpose for them to be in the world. He has a reason why all of you are still here, and he didn't beam you once you believed. But he wants and he prays to the Father that his children would be preserved in the midst of this perverse world. And of course, the world is getting, we could say, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul tells Timothy, but you continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. So he knew the world was going to be hostile. He says, God, as they live their lives in this world, preserve them not only from the world, but also from the evil one. You know what, at this point, of course, Satan desired to destroy Jesus. He now, of course, is manifesting his attacks, and he knew Satan would manifest his attacks directly on these men in the days ahead. In fact, right around this time, somewhere right around this vicinity, Luke records another conversation that Jesus had with another one of his disciples. Remember in Luke chapter 2? And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have what? But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen the brethren. For Satan wanted to chop up Peter and destroy him. But Jesus prayed for his preservation. And of course, all of us are very well aware that nothing can happen to us that God doesn't allow. And nothing will never happen in our lives in which he will not provide us the grace and help. There's no temptation taken us, but that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will now not allow us to be tempted above that we are able, but will with that temptation also make the way of escape that we may be able to Bear it. All that to say this. Men, as you are in ministry or you begin ministry and as you begin to take your role as a a shepherd of the flock, one of the things that we ought to pray particularly for our congregation is that God would preserve them from the world that they're confronted with. Many of their workplaces are very hostile Many of the schools that they are attending, whether they're in the, the public arena, the secular colleges, they are no friends to grace. And you have got to pray that God would protect them. Pray for their deliverance. Pray for them as they get assaulted by the one who they have been warned about, who is seeking like a roaring lion, 
whom he may devour. Pray for them, and I would also say this, do not hesitate to tell them that you pray for them. Who did? Jesus did. I prayed for you. You know what it may be? That as you pray that God would preserve certain ones in your flock, you pull out your phone and you text them, I pray for you today. You know, some of the sweetest texts are when you do that, and you know what, it'll get reciprocated. One of the things we do at our staff planning is we try to pray through all of our church congregation. As soon as we're done with one set, all the guys are texting people and saying, hey, I wanted you to know I prayed for you today, and I prayed this for you. And that means so much. Paul prayed for his churches. Did he tell them that he prayed for them? Yeah. He's constantly, I don't cease to pray for you about this. Okay. They are going to be up against a lot. They need your prayers. Second request for them. Pray this. Jesus prays not only for their preservation, he also prays for their sanctification. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. So he prays to the Father, and this is one of the things, God, sanctify them. And of course, you know that literally means to set them apart. God wants them to be set apart from the world and to God. As a kid, I I collected baseball and football cards. It's not as in vogue today as it was when I was younger. But there would be times when I get that one really good card, and I would set it apart. I want to. You put it in a special little. Pla- remember those plastic sheets that you threw them all in? Say, I got to protect this one. I was a big uh, dolphin. Still am a big dolphin fan. I grew up in the Marino era, era, and got a rookie Dan Marino signed when I was real young, and so that one was always set apart, away from everything else that would not be hindered in any way. And what Jesus is saying in this particular text is he's praying that we would be progressively set apart to him. Of course, this is the process of Christ being formed in us, and this sanctification takes place by, the text says, by the truth. And of course, he then tells us what the truth is. It takes place through the word of God. The way that we, as God's people, Our being sanctified is by being exposed to the Word. And Jesus prays that they would be sanctified by means of the Word. And so I would commend to all of you, as you pray for their preservation, you also pray for their sanctification. You pray as they get exposed to the Word that they would allow it to have deep root in their life that you would personally pray that they would hear your, the preaching of the Word, that they would be in attendance. Pray on Saturday they'll come so that they would be sanctified by the Word. Pray that they would be in God's Word. Of course, what did Paul say? He says, tells the people, I think, in Galatia, in whom I travail and birth until Christ be formed in you. I never understood literally what that meant until I had a kidney stone. Any of you had a kidney stone before? Okay. Most painful thing I have ever experienced. They said close to travailing in birth. And 
This idea of seeing them sanctified and becoming more mature in Christ, he says, he says, literally, I travail in birth till Christ is formed in me. And so as you pray, what does Jesus pray for you? He prays for you that you'd be sanctified. Of course, the goal of this sanctification is for those who he sanctifies to be his sent ones into the world. Verse 18, it says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Just like Jesus was sent by the Father, Jesus' disciples were going to go carry on that same mission that he had accomplished. This was the whole basis for him sanctifying himself. Verse 19, he says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. All that to say this, men, pray consistently for your people's preservation and pray for their sanctification by the word. And that brings me to the final request. He also prays for their unification. Okay. Look at what it says in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And of course, here you know it's another hinge in this particular prayer. Jesus is not simply praying for the eleven, but all those who would believe in the word through uh through the disciples, and I'm, I'm looking at all of you. This is you. He's praying for you. We learn, of course, here as well, beforehand, that the disciples' ministry would bring results. As he prays this, those disciples, that they were really listening, hey, that means people are going to come to Christ through us. It's interesting that up to this point, it's always talking about Jesus' word in the prayer, but now it's the disciples' word. I want them to listen to my word, my word. Now it's their word. What does he pray for now? He prays for their deep unity. Uh, it was now a number of years ago. I was at a staff planning retreat at my first ministry, and we were brainstorming for an upcoming theme for our year. We wanted to emphasize this theme of unity, and we were trying to look for a catchy phrase. What would be a real catchy phrase to just really help our church think about unity this next year? I was the young, think-outside-the-box youth pastor, so I thought I had come up with a great idea. However, it never got selected. And for years, I was kitted by that particular staff for my idea for a theme for unity. At the time... I'm not sure I considered the passage that I'm about to read to you, okay? Because otherwise, I may have been able to convince them that this was the theme they needed to do. Here was my catchy theme that they opted not to take. Oh, excuse me. That wasn't it. That's the last one. Be one. You guys don't like it either, do you? <laughs> I was like, guys, I got it. Be one. It's like trendy, it's catchy. Let's just say, tell our church, they need to be unified, be one. And of course, they were like, nah, we're not going to do this. So, it's clean, yeah, besides getting a little confused with an airplane. I thought it simply conveyed God's desire for his people. But you know what, this is exactly 
what Jesus prayed for in his prayer. So I wish I would have had this ammunition. Okay, I said, Jesus prayed for this. Listen to what he says in verse 21. That they may be what? Be one. There it is. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That particular phrase, be one, that they may be one, is found in both verse 22 and verse 23. That whole concept. And notice the type of unity that he prays for in reference to us. He's describing the unity that we would have to be the unity that is enjoyed within the Godhead. So when he prays for unification, he says, I want them to have unity. And the type of unity I want them to have is the type of unity that's found within the Godhead. Now, can you get any more unified than that? No. I mean, he says at verse 21, he says that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He says in verse 22, the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Now, that's the supreme example. I mean, the granddaddy of them all. If I was going to describe, hey, what's the biggest golf tournament in the United States? I would say it's the Masters. It's the big one. Okay, biggest pro football game, Super Bowl. Now, to blow everything away, what's the biggest sense of unity? It's the Trinity. And Jesus prays that you would be brought into unification as he is with the Father. That's huge. That's massive. Now, he prays for this type of unity in our lives. Who are the people that that unity ought to be? enjoyed with well of course it's a unity with who with god that your people would have such unity with god that's demonstrated within the godhead that they may be one in us that we would walk in unity with the lord now how does that all begin it begins by you and i receiving the word and many of you you remember the day you received the word for the first time but it's continued and sustained of course John 15, by being those who abide in the Word. And that unity is continued and uh, fostered in our practical lives by being men and women who are in the Word. But I would also say this. It's by implication as well, a unity with other believers. This is the thing that we need to pray for. How often does Paul talk about unity within the church? All the time. Jesus is praying for unity with God, which by implication would mean if we're all unified with God, there will be what? Unity within what? The body. The local churches. So if you're one of God's children, you must understand not only am I one of God's children, I'm not an only child. I've been brought to the table with a number of other people. And I've got to learn how to live in harmony. If God has been so benevolent with me, I've got to learn how to live in unity. I mean, with Puerto Rico having been devastated by this particular storm, let's say some benevolent millionaire gets a cruise boat, buys it, fills it up with food, 
and goes and picks up 6,000 people from Puerto Rico and rescues them for a time. And he's done all this and everything is free. When you get on that boat, you think, man, he's done so much. I at least need to be benevolent with the other people. Let me just tell you, God has been benevolent to us and so gracious to us. And he wants us to be unified with us. So the natural response or the worthy response, maybe it's not the natural response. The worthy response is that we would be in unity with other people. Why does he want this? He prays, God, I want them to be one like we are one for this purpose. Look at what it says in verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. What's the purpose? The purpose of all of this is that the world would see that unity within God's people. And they may want what we have. It's, uh, it was recently, I get to listen to the testimonies of people who come into our church to join. It was recently one of our new members shared his testimony of how uh, when he was unsaved, he was invited to a ski trip with the singles of the church that he had been visiting. Up to that point, he was extremely suspicious of people. And he was always, there's always a jerk somewhere. Always a jerk. I'm going to go on the ski trip, and then I'll find them. I'm going to find the jerk in the group. And as he went to this group of people who loved the Lord, what he began to notice was he began to see a unity in a group of singles just caring for each other and loving each other. And when he saw that unity and he saw that love, it was what eventually opened his eyes to the truths of the gospel and opened his heart. You know what we ought to pray for? We ought to pray for unity, that our people would be one with the Lord and with each other. He prays for that unity to be on display so the world would see, and we see also Jesus prays for the ultimate finality of this unity which is this, that we would all be one forever in His presence. Look at what He says in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom You gave Me may be with Me where I am, that they may behold My glory, which You have given Me, for You love Me before the foundation of the world. Now, did you notice He moves from pray? He says, Notice Jesus says desire here. That word desire, rather than pray, is a stronger term than prayer. He desires that we would experience the ultimate unity. And what is that? That is when all of us see his unveiled glory. Now, these disciples who he's praying for, had they seen glory at any point? John 1 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? Glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the, the Father, full of grace and glory. And for, for three and a half years, they saw glory, glimpses of it. I mean, I love what it says at the end of John when he's interacting with Nathaniel. And he says, you're going to see the heavens open and the angels 
descend and descend on the Son of Man. I, I look at that, it's almost like you haven't seen nothing yet. You just wait. And of course, three of them had an opportunity to see his glory in many ways shine through his earthly body. They had a glimpse of it. But what is Jesus praying for here? This prayer is that all of us, all of our people, would see him in all of his glory, that God would finish his work, and it would all be done. In fact, he expresses it uh, in this way. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall shall be, but we know when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What did John pray for? I mean, what did Jesus pray for? As John records, he prays for his disciples for their preservation in this world. He prays for their sanctification in this world. And he prays for their unification, looking forward to the day when we will be like him, when we will see him as he is. That is how Jesus prays. So one way you could say this, he prays for his glorification for his disciples, preservation and sanctification and unification for the multiplication of his disciples for the ultimate glorification of us all in heaven. So men, as you engage in praying for your disciples, what do you learn from Jesus? Jesus prayed for his disciples particularly. So pray for your people. And what can you pray for them about? Follow your Lord. Of course, pray for his glorification in everything. But pray for these things. And uh, and I trust God will richly bless your ministry. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the model that your son gives us. And so as we continue in prayer today, Lord, I ask that in everything that we do in our lives, that your Son would be glorified and that glory would rebound for all eternity. I pray for our people. Many of us in here are pastors and our people are in various locations at this very moment. Would you preserve them in the midst of this world that is no friend to grace? Would you keep them from evil? Would you help them not to give into their flesh? Father, I ask that you would preserve them from the evil one and all of the principalities and powers that we are wrestling against. Help them to submit to you. Help them to draw near to God. Father, I pray for our people that you would also sanctify them. Would you allow your word to be evident in their lives today? Would you prompt each of our people to go to the scriptures today and allow them to uh, order their steps in your word and let not sin have iniquity over, I mean, have dominion over them. Lord, I ask, Father, as well, that you would allow them to be unified. Help them to walk with you and submit their lives to you in every way. May they be one with you and one with each other. Would you allow there to be unity within our assemblies? May our people walk worthy of the calling with which they are called, with all lowliness, with meekness, with long-suffering, 
Help them to forbear with one another in love and help them to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then, Father, uh, I ask that you would use that unification to continue to multiply your church. And we look forward to the day that you would glorify all of us and may we, may we all be one in you. We look forward to that day, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. All the people of the Lord said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Inner City Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.